Well, I'm overwhelmed by that introduction. I feel like you start in a hole and have to climb out after that, just reaching up. I, I just am overwhelmed to be here. Uh, it, it is such an honor and a joy. I was flabbergasted when your pastor invited me to come. I thought, wow, a local guy. Um, that's really something. So, so I, I just... I want to say I'm genuinely blessed. Uh, it, it is a joy and an honor. And I appreciate your pastor so much. We have gotten to know one another over the past, as Pastor Doug said, 20 years. I appreciate his heart. He has a heart after God, and that's everything right there. And, um, and I am trusting that that heart is contagious to all of you, to this church, and, and becomes uh, really the, the set stone that, that helps you set course for what God has in the future. Delighted to be here. My wife, Marcia, is here with us tonight. Delighted that she's here. She, when I preach, usually we sit in the front row together and... Um, when I come down off the platform, I stand next to her and, and I lean over and say, well, <laughs> and I get an instant and honest critique. And the absolute worst thing that she can say is when I say, well, she says, fine. Oh, Jesus, help. Well, we're going to believe God for more tonight. Hallelujah. Psalm 145, verses 2 to 4. The psalmist writes, Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend, commend your works to another, and they will tell of your mighty acts. Tonight, I'm going to tell stories. I want to tell stories of God's mighty acts. But before getting to those stories, I want to establish some basic understanding with you. Firstly, if we learned anything through God's visitation at Church of the Living God, it is that revival is a work of God and the result of his sovereign good pleasure. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We can't lay claim to it. And why he picked us, I don't have a clue. Revival, true revival, comes down from above. Revivalism, on the other hand, is earthy. It's man's attempt to recreate or to mimic or to jumpstart something that looks like true revival. But an earthy birth will result in earthy fruit. Now, the stories I tell may not fit with your idea of what revival is. My idea of revival involved Billy Graham and Coliseums or a tent and a sawdust floor. 
you'll hear some things that are a little bit different than that. And so because revival is the work of God, the second point I want to establish is that neither I nor anyone else can create revival. But what I can do, what I hope to do in our time together is to provoke you. To provoke you toward a desperation for God. Through scripture, through stories, through testimonies. My own and some of the folks perhaps who are with me. uh, My goal is to help start a fire or, or better than that, maybe more appropriately, fan the embers that are there, the flames that are there a little bit higher. The third thing I want to establish, I know numbers of you know me, many don't. I am a man of the word. I am not a flake, nor do I suffer flakes well. Friends and colleagues have referred to me as an anti-charismatic charismatic. When revival broke out at CLG, those who knew me marveled having labeled me as least likely to receive. When we began as a church, it was in rented facilities just down the road and around the corner at Robertson School. We had a nice church, as nice a church as you can have in a rented school. It was orderly. We did things well. It was nice. But it was missing something. In scripture, the concept of revival is usually linked with that of restoration. In Psalm 80, verses 18 and 19... Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, O Lord God Almighty, and make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Psalm 85, 4-7, Restore us again, O God our Savior. Put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again? that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. What a delight to be here for your Holy Spirit weekend. And what a delight that the theme is revival, that God would revive us and restore us. The Hebrew word translated revive means to come back to life to be restored to life or to health. The word translated restore is to turn back, to refresh, to repair. Revival then is probably best seen as the restoration or renewal of something that was lost or diminished. Now, sadly, I guess it's sadly, The church is in need of regular revival because of recurring spiritual decline. Like Israel, life within the church is never constant, but it moves through times and seasons of spiritual wilderness, followed by times of vibrancy and renewal. What is regularly lost and diminished in the church are usually two things, passion and presence. Passion and presence. Passion, 
as the old chorus declares, you are the air I breathe. You are my daily bread. Passion, hearts filled with a desire for God and his ways. Passion for the reality and the extension of God's kingdom. The other thing often lost or diminished is presence. The presence of the living God. The entire history of God and his relationship with his people is one of visitation. It's a history of his coming down to men. I was more than amused. I was greatly encouraged by your pastor's prayer earlier. Do you remember Cliff Notes? From, I don't even know if they still print those. Well, his prayer essentially was the Cliff Notes of all three of my messages for this weekend. So get the tape, and we'll save you lots of time. But, but God's history is one of visitation. He walked in the garden in the cool of day with Adam and Eve. He visited Abram and initiated a covenant of grace, a covenant through which we are saved today. He descended on Mount Sinai with fire, smoke, and the sound of blaring trumpets, causing both the mountain and Israel to tremble violently. Listen to the cries of the prophets. In Isaiah 64, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. In Hosea 6.3, let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Leaping into the New Testament, the greatest coming down of God took place on that first Christmas. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Right through to Revelation, when John caught a glimpse into heaven and saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea, but I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them and they'll be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. The history of God from Genesis to Revelation is one of coming down in visitation with his people. His coming down to men. And so tonight, I want to talk to you about God's visitation, of his coming down, and specifically of his coming down to the church I pastor. Nathaniel Bowditch I don't know if that name would ring a bell to any history buff. He lived back in the 
late 1700s, early 1800s, he is called the father of modern navigation. The navies of the world still use his navigational principles. When he was a young man, he was on a sea journey, and he happened to be standing next to the captain when the ship they were on had been becalmed. The sails hung limp, the ship wasn't moving, and the captain, speaking more to himself than anybody else, said, well, I guess we'll be sailing by the ash breeze today. And Bowditch asked the captain, what do you mean sailing by the ash breeze? And the explanation was, when there was no wind, they would put a longboat out in front of the ship attached by a line. A crew would then begin to row and tow that ship forward from its place to a new area where hopefully the wind was blowing. Well, the church that I pastored was sailing by the ash breeze. We had learned to pull the oars well. We rowed well. As I said, we had a nice church. And I hated it. I hated it. There was a discontent sowed in my heart. And I hated it. I was miserable. I knew there had to be more and different. And so in November of 1993, I attended a pastor's prayer summit at a retreat center in New Hampshire and went absolutely miserably. During that time, there were uh, maybe a hundred pastors. It was a large room. There were extra chairs, so they pulled the extra chairs and stacked them in a corner. And I, and I didn't want to be with anybody in my misery, so I found there was a space in the corner that I could sneak through and get there and hide. And I hid there with God and cried out to him. And he burned into my heart, Exodus 33, 15 to 16. Moses cried out, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? That became my cry. Now, the background story is that God had appeared to his people on Mount Sinai. The people were terrified. God was bigger and more awesome than they anticipated. And they quickly turned to idolatry in the form of a golden calf. God was angered. He was determined to destroy the people and start over again through Moses. But Moses interceded and God relented. But God said to Moses, my paraphrase, listen, I'm not going to wipe them out, but I'm not going to go with them either because I know they'll just tick me off and I'll wipe them out tomorrow. Read it. It's in there. God said he would withdraw his presence, but send an angel. Now, think of this. Israel knew God as deliverer. They knew God as miracle worker. He had led them through the Red Sea. They had seen his glory. And now he was saying, I'll send an angel with you. That's not bad. But Moses said, nuts to that. Again, my paraphrase. If your presence doesn't go with us, don't 
send us up from here. If you're not willing to stand in the midst of your people, we're not going anywhere. It's only your living presence that makes us any different from anyone else anywhere. That's the passage that was burned into my heart beginning in November 93, and I stayed miserable for months wrestling with that, but neither God nor that passage would let me go. Seven months later, we had a guest speaker at our church. Numbers of people here might know who he is. A man by the name of David Edwards became a a close friend of mine. He was a professor at Elam Bible Institute when my wife and I attended. Uh, Became president of that Bible Institute. We invited him to come. And David Edwards was a Welshman. He passed away just a year ago. And if you look up dignified in the dictionary, you'll see his little picture right there. It's uh, this absolutely wonderfully dignified Englishman who was the smartest, most eloquent man that I ever knew. Well, he was scheduled to speak on Sunday morning. Saturday night, we had a leadership meeting in my house, my living room, elders, wives, we were the staff. And David, his habit was when we did that, we'd fellowship and then he would teach. Well, we sat down expecting him to teach and he said, I'm not going to teach. I'm I'm going to say a few things about prayer and then I feel everyone here is supposed to receive prayer. And so he did, he talked a little about prayer very briefly and said, okay, now who who wants to be first? And, And nobody moved and so I figured being pastor, I probably should go first and set the example. And I went up and stood before David, and he stood and stretched out his hand to pray for me and pulled it back. Now, I had known David as an eloquent preacher, one of the best teachers I ever knew. I never knew him to be prophetic at all. But he prophesied and said, I believe... God wants to do something significant in your church. So, wow, that's really nice. Who didn't want to hear that? And then he stretched forth his hand a second time to pray and pulled it back again. And he says, but the Lord wants you to know there's going to be a price. Are you willing to pay it? And again, wanting to be a good example to everybody, what am I going to say? No, I want a free ride. Sure. Stretched forth his hand a third time, pulled it back and said, the price will be your reputation. And my reputation at that time meant everything to me. And David asked, are you willing? And I swallowed hard because I was desperate for God and said yes. David prayed for me, and it was a nice prayer, and absolutely nothing extraordinary happened. And then the next person got up to receive prayer, and David laid his hands on that person, and that person was struck by the power of God and ended up on my living room floor. Now, that concerned me. Second person went up, the exact same thing. Third person came up, the exact same thing. And the reason it concerned me is because I had taught against this. In my wrongful thinking, as I found out later, I had taught that, 
when people get prayed for and they fall down, either it's the flesh or God had to put them there because they were too stubborn to listen any other way. That's not a badge of honor. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. And these people had fallen down and were lying apparently quite contentedly on my living room floor. He prayed for everyone in that house and they all, touched by the power of God, in my house, laying on my floor. We literally picked up the furniture, emptied the living room to contain the bodies. Can I tell a story at your expense? David, this, was, this, this happened in July. David had been in my house, had been in our church the previous January, had been so desperately ill, he nearly died in my house. When I took him back to the airport to fly home, we said goodbye, thinking it would be the last time we saw each other in this life. He was in horrific pain as a result of a fall where he'd struck the back of his head on the sidewalk. He had to wear one of those electric things that jolt you to mask the pain, and his whole body was just deteriorating. Well, he rallied after he left in January, enough to come back again in July. When people were getting up off the floor and and we were being restored to dignity, We were about to go home, and David said, it struck me. I opened by saying, I thought everyone here tonight should receive prayer, and it strikes me that I'm the only one who hasn't. Would you pray for me? And so we gathered round and stretched out our hands to pray for David, and two things happened simultaneously. Firstly, the power of God came down from heaven and hit David Edwards, and he fell, not backwards, forward, face first, onto my living room floor, and nobody caught him. Broke his fall. He just went down and began to weep bitterly. And simultaneously, every other individual in that room, there were probably 20 of us, broke into uproarious laughter. It was totally inappropriate. And nobody could stop. We laughed. That was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. And while I'm laughing uproariously, I'm thinking, we just killed David Edwards. When we all settled down, he began to stir. We helped him up. He wasn't hurt. He was healed. Now, the part I left out was... Linda Duplin was there that night with her husband, Bud. And when we went to pray, she prophesied. And I don't remember the whole word, but it was essentially, you see yourself as old and spent. But I see you as a young warrior whose years, whose best years in ministry are yet ahead of you. And that's when the power of God came down. The next morning, Mind you, I'm the pastor of a nice church and I've preached about decorum and propriety. The exact same thing happened in two services. We're on a gym floor. 
In those days, we still wore suits and ties, and people are all over the floor in suits and ties and Sunday dresses. And weirder than that, when second service came in, they had to step over bodies to get in, but they came in anyway. You want to talk about faith. That was the initial outpouring, our initial taste of the power of God, and we had no idea where it was going or what was coming. But gradually there was a change in our midst. It was a sense of a rising tide. Something was coming. I was not aware that in January a similar outpouring had taken place in a small church in Toronto. Before that in Argentina, before that in South Africa. That outpouring snowballed, encompassed the entire globe, and literally touched every denomination of Christianity on the planet. 40% of the Anglican church in England was drastically touched and renewed. We finally completed our building project and got to move out of the school, and I thought, now we're we're really going to be dignified, other than this falling down stuff that's going on. And I invited everybody, people who had been significant in my life. I grew up in Manchester, and, and I invited the pastor of the church, Ken Gustafson, who is a prince of God, pastor's first uh, uh, Calvary Assembly uh, right in South Windsor. He came and brought a couple of dozen people with him, and one of them was a little old lady who, when I had gotten saved in 1973, was a little old lady then. She came, said nice things, oohed and awed over the, the, the foyer, walked into the sanctuary. I greeted a few more people. This little lady, Mrs. Carson, came back out. And, and she, she was only about this tall, but she reared herself up and got in my face and said, young man, you have made a grave mistake, which is exactly what you want to hear at your building dedication. I said, What? Just you have so underestimated what God will do in this place. Just four months later, we had another guest speaker, and he began to preach. His name was Tom Nelson. He was there for several days, and during that time, God chose to come to church. God came to church. And everything changed. Everything changed. He manifested the weight of his glory. He displayed his power just by touching his people. Tom would pray for people, and and they, overwhelmed with the power of God, would fall down. Now, I struggled, as I said, with that, so I fled into the scriptures, and to my amazement saw that what I hadn't seen before was basically from beginning to end, when God shows up, people fall down. And I thought how arrogant that I could think a human being could stand before the infinite and all-powerful God and not have some sort of reaction. Well, Tom prayed for people, and he prayed for people, and he prayed for people, and when the altar area was full, he moved down the center aisle, and when the center aisle was full, he went out into the foyer, and pretty soon, every square inch of floor in that building was covered by a human body. 
Now, he had no idea what had transpired that first night back in January when David Edwards was with us. But at one point, I watched in amazement as he picked his way, stepping over bodies to come down back to the front, to the pulpit area. And as he walked by me, he sat out of the side of his mouth. Well, I guess that takes care of the reputation. From that time on, I and the leaders of the church church labored to understand. We labored to let God be God. We labored to avoid error and to be God-honoring. And as I said, I was driven to Scripture, and I was driven into history. The unusual manifestations began to increase dramatically. I think over time we began over the next months to feel maybe just a little self-confident that, hey, we're learning to handle this new weird thing. But in October 95, a Wednesday evening service, although God had been coming to church, the sense of his presence, demonstrations of his power, It seemed like he was coming in through the front door. This night changed everything. We were in worship, and worship was attaining a depth that I had not experienced before. It was significant. And in the middle of that, our fire alarm went off. And it was a a big klaxon-sounding alarm and then a voice saying, emergency, evacuate the building now. And it would repeat. And this thing was deafening. And I was grieved because here we, we we, we were stepping into something in worship I had never enjoyed before to that depth. And so I knew what was going to come next, and that was a phone call. There was a phone in the foyer, and I went out angry that that this great thing had been quenched. And um, sure enough, the phone rang, and I picked it up, and it was the alarm company. And they said, we have a report of a fire, fire alarm. I said, no, everything's fine. Uh, We're going to send the fire department. No, don't send the fire department. Well, we need your password. I said, I don't have a password secretary has the password. I don't know what the password is. Well, if we don't have the password, we have to send the fire department. And so now I've gone from the absolute heights of incredible worship into the depths of my flesh and said to this person, listen, you got a choice to make. You can send the fire department or take my word for it, but you need to know if you send the fire department, we will have a new alarm company tomorrow. So they didn't send the fire department. I walked back into the sanctuary, and and no one, even though the alarm was, was going off and they were being told this was an emergency, get out of the building, no one had moved. Everyone was still there. I stepped into the doors, and and the sense of God's presence literally flattened me against the back wall. And our worship leader 
left the platform and came walking down the aisle and he stood against the wall next to me. When we debriefed later, I said, you were the worship leader. Why did you leave? And he said two things. Number one, I knew God was coming. And number two, I knew I just started the wrong chorus. So knowing somebody had to be in charge, I made my way up and and got up onto the platform. And I stood there, and the presence of God continued to build. And he didn't come through the front door. This night, he peeled the roof of the sanctuary back and just poured himself in. And I want to tell you, it was the most wonderful thing and the scariest thing I have ever been through. Ever. There's a Latin theological term. Mysterium tremendum. The awful mystery. Those who were there that night were filled with wonder and with dread. His presence was wonderful. It was awful. We all hoped it would happen again. We hoped it would never happen again. And it went on for approximately 45 minutes. The weight of the glory, the literal weight of the glory of God pressed people to the floor. Those who were smart laid down on their own. Those who weren't tried to stand hung on to the seat back in front of them, and you could see the strain of their arms shaking as they tried to stay on their feet until they crumpled down straight. The entire worship team hit the deck, and I was left last man standing. Somebody had to be in charge. I came down off the platform, and and the sense of the weightiness of God's presence was so strong I bent over and propped myself up, putting my hands on my knees just to hold myself upright. Somebody had to be in charge. I'm going to say something outrageous. But with God as my witness, it is the truth. Everybody's seen... Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Remember what happened when they opened it at the end? I knew that evening, that moment, that if I did something flippant, God would have killed me. I knew it then, and I know it to be true tonight. His presence came. His glory came. The word glory in the Old Testament means weightiness. Well, that lifted. Everybody went home. Nobody said a word. Overwhelmed. We'd never heard of anything like this. Never mind experience it. We found ourselves in the manifest presence of God the next morning my alarm went off rolled out of bed stood up and my body screamed every muscle in my body 
screamed from overexertion. The weight of his presence. This wasn't some weird, imaginative, stupid thing. The weight of it, I felt like I had climbed Mount Everest the night before, and that bodily stiffness lasted for several days. The exertion. Now, what do we mean when we talk of his manifest presence? There are, biblically, theologically, three modes of God's presence. There is his omnipresence. The fact that God is everywhere always. There is no place we can go where he is not. Then there is, of course, his indwelling presence. When we receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, embracing him, yielding our lives to him, God comes in the person of the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, come and indwell every believer. His indwelling presence. But there is also his manifest presence. His manifest presence is that tangible sense and evidence of God's presence and power in our midst. It is the pillar of fire and cloud in Israel. The key word is tangible, not theoretical, not theological, not imaginative. Tangible, to be real or actual, to be experiential. Now, some folks get nervous over the idea of experiencing the manifest presence of God because experience can and has become a dirty word in the church. As a result... We hold that kind of stuff off like I did until God won. We hold that off and the church becomes dry and rationalistic. We settle for form and function rather than life. We pull on the oars and sail by the ash breeze. See, but I believe the church and the world are desperate for the revelation and experience of the manifest presence of God. God came to church at Church of the Living God on July 24th, 1994. Now, had he been in church before then? Of course. In every believer. His omnipresence, of course, But beginning on July 24th, 1994, his manifest presence began to be woven into the fabric of who we are. Beginning on July 24th, as God began to come to church, many were glad. And more than a few were mad and left. One lady confronted me after that first Sunday when things began to happen that had not happened before. And she shook her finger in my face and said, you have ruined our church. And it was the last time I saw her. But for everyone who left, two or three more came. You've heard of the Great Awakening. Church historians generally say greatest visitation of God 
the church in America has ever known, Great Britain as well, took place mid-1720s to mid-1740s. The Great Awakening, you read the history books, church history, great move of God. But history books tend to clean things up. You go back and start reading the writings of the day and the journals of those who were involved, and sadly, in the Great Awakening, most churches and believers actually rejected or simply ignored what God was doing. During the years of visitation we experienced, and it lasted for 12 years, by the way, during those years of God's visitation, we experienced many interesting and even challenging manifestations of God's presence and glory. But every one of those things is recorded as having transpired in the Great Awakening. We had to come to understand when an infinite and all-powerful God touches finite and frail human beings, things happen. As we began to lay hands on people and pray over them, people touched by the power of God would swoon, they would fall, they would jerk, twitch, they would laugh, they would cry. We experienced salvations and healings, restorations and deliverances like never before we began regularly to see signs and wonders. On one Sunday, my, my wife and I have three absolutely wonderful daughters who are adult daughters now. But our oldest daughter, who would have been 10 at the time, during church, she nudged her mom and showed her mom her hands, and her hands were covered with gold. And my wife, being the good mother and pastor's wife that she is, said, you stop fooling around, go to the ladies' room, clean up your hands, stop it. So our daughter, Melinda, went to the ladies' room, washed her hands, and came back. Worship continued. A few minutes later, she nudged her mom again, held out her hands, and they were all covered with gold. And Marcia again, I told you, stop it. Go wash up. No more of this. She went out, washed her hands, came back. A few minutes later, third time, held out her hands, glistened with gold, both hands. And I looked at that and said, oh, no. that manifestation of gold dust became a regular thing and lasted for years. It would take place at any time during the service. It would simply appear on people, their hands, their arms, their faces. I would preach and it would appear on my Bible. People were so overwhelmed by it, they blamed our air conditioning system. Must be faulty. Yeah, what air conditioning spits gold dust? It fell on believers. It fell on unbelievers. At one point, I had left my Bible on the front seat. The gold dust began to manifest, to appear. I picked my Bible up. It was on my Bible, but when I lifted my Bible, you could see where it had been on the seat because of the gold dust imprint left around it. We were able to collect some, being the great man of 
faith that I am and take it to a jeweler and had it tested. The jeweler said, 22 carats. It's not bad. We had a staff meeting, talked about it. What are we going to do about this thing? The custodian at the time said, oh, yeah, I've been vacuuming that stuff up for weeks. Gold dust. When we prayed for people, I, I teach our prayer ministers, when you pray, keep your eyes open. You don't know what's going to happen, and, and we need to be involved. And, and we would be praying, and people would stand in a posture of receiving, and, and I'd watch hands, and I, I would see just a gold sheen begin to appear. And it would get more and more bright and thick and spread up arms and up necks. And, and before my eyes, I would see this stuff, and it would blow me and everybody else away. So why would God do that? I have no idea. Signs and wonders. God does stuff and we wonder about it. It's just a little display of his glory. We had oil appear and I was more freaked out by the oil than I was the gold dust. Our piano player came up once. Her husband actually brought her. He said, you need to see something. It's all right. And she held her hands out, and, and they were hands. And she said, no, watch. And, and her hands began to get, it looked like they were starting to sweat, and then they began to shine, and then they were wet. And then within about a whole minute of process, an oil of a very fine viscosity just poured off of her fingertips. And again, I thought, oh, no, I, we thought maybe it was a healing anointing, and it wasn't. We had her pray for people, and, and it was just a sign, a wonder. It happened to a couple of people. When she played the piano, she would lay a towel across her lap, and she would play until her fingers began to slide and wipe her hands and play some more. Why would that happen? I don't know. During worship, I would guess over a period of maybe three or four years on probably a couple of dozen occasions a cloud would form in the sanctuary from the midpoint of the sanctuary forward but particularly over the platform where the worship team was playing. It would be a blue-gray cloud that would first be wispy and then thick, thicken. And, and it wasn't, you didn't have to be weird to see it. The kids would point and laugh. At one point, it was always there except once, and then it was low and on the platform. And our sound crew thought that we were having an electrical fire underneath the platform, and they were panicking until they realized, no, this is that, only low. We, we don't, why? I don't know. I don't know. The weirdest thing. You thought those were weird? We would pray for people all across the front of the church and God would touch them. But there on... on 
your right, my left, right side of the platform, there was an area probably 10 feet square. Is that fair? 15 feet. For some reason, God liked it there. And if people stepped into that area, the power of God would light them up. I don't know why. It's the only place it happened, and it was consistent. People got to know about it, and it it began to be called the glory corner. We had a guest speaker, Fount Schultz was his name, another professor from Elam Bible Institute. He was a walker while he preached, back and forth, back and forth. Now, he, his first visit, he had no clue about what goes on over here. And, he, and people who did know, they'd watch, and he'd come over this far, and then he'd turn and just walk back and make his way, and then he'd turn and come back and walk a little bit further. And, and everybody was going, huh? And again, he'd come back, huh? And finally, he took a step too far, totally unaware, uncoached, unprepared, God lit him up and the meeting was over. He was on the floor for the count. Numbers of creative people in the church got together, bought him a t-shirt that he comments when he sees me, I still have it, that said, I survived the glory corner. (laughs) We learned through that, and it was hard It was hard. The accusations that came, the ridicule that came, it was hard. But we learned that we cannot contain God in the box of our own comfort zones. We learned that we need to allow God to be God. From beginning to end, we were challenged and stretched. I never had more fun. I never worked harder in my life. As I said, I was driven during that time to scripture and to history. I read the works and the journals of Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, George Whitfield, the keynote men of the Great Awakening. And I was amazed to discover that all of what was going on with us All of those unusual, unsettling, outward manifestations went on during the Great Awakening. History books don't mention that, but their journals do. George Whitfield, one of the greatest preachers ever, significant figure during that move of God, was initially disturbed by the things he was seeing and hearing regarding these various manifestations. And so he went to meet with John Wesley to voice his concerns. Wesley recorded this in his journal, July 7th, 1739. I had opportunity to talk with him. George, George, I'm sorry to spit into this mic like this. George Whitfield of those outward signs which had so often accompanied the inward work of God. I found his objections were chiefly founded on gross 
misrepresentations of matters of fact. But the next day, he had an opportunity of informing himself better. For no sooner had he begun in the application of his sermon to invite all sinners to believe in Christ than four persons sunk down close to him almost at the same moment. One of them lay without either sense or motion. A second trembled exceedingly. The third had strong convulsions all over his body but made no noise unless by groans. The fourth equally convulsed called upon God with strong cries and tears. And then Wesley writes, From this time, I trust, we shall all suffer God to carry on his own work in any way that pleaseth him. Amen. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards, in his short work called Marks of a Work of the True Spirit, said we ought not limit God where he has not limited himself. Now, I've told you those stories, and we can validly ask the question at this point, well, that's all great, sounds like fun, it's neat, but what was the fruit? What was the fruit? Someone who left mad wrote a scathing letter. Actually, it was someone who left mad and joined up with people who had never been to the church or, or seen any of the things, experienced anything going on. They formed a little committee, wrote me a, a scathing letter, and I responded this way. I want to read you a portion of my response to this critic. It was in 1998, so four years had gone by since we started. I wrote... I was saddened to receive your letter containing your objections to and rejection of this current move of God. I will do my best to respond to the issues that you've raised. You have accused me and the church of not holding scripture as our primary source of authority. If you really believe that this revival is unbiblical, then I ask that you show me a single command, a single precept, a single prohibition that we have violated. What forbidden thing have we engaged in? What sin have we committed? What point of orthodoxy have we corrupted? Please, if you know of any, show me. You should also consider that at the height of the Great Awakening, recognized by church historians as the greatest move of God this country has seen, more Christians and churches stood opposed to what God was doing than were involved in it. They referred to it as the great clamor. Why? They objected to what they judged to be unbiblical practices, failed to recognize the fruit, and in so doing missed what God was doing. And you, my brother, with the position you hold and the approach you are taking, would have been in that number. And you would have been wrong. Is that really where you want to stand is this move of God without problems? Of course not. John Wesley warned that we should never expect any visitation of God to be untainted by human involvement. Jesus said in John 7, 24, Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. After more than four years in revival, I have yet to hear any critic of this move of God point to anything other than appearances. 
They don't like what it looks like. But what of the fruit? Consider the following. We recently baptized 67 people. Since the revival began, we've seen more people come to Christ than ever before. We've seen more healings, physically, mentally, and emotionally. More deliverances and more restorations of families and marriages than ever before. The congregation I pastor is more in love with Jesus and more excited about the kingdom of God than they have ever been. A deep desire for holiness and a spirit of repentance permeates the people. A missionary fervor has gripped the church. In the past three years, we have sent more than 200 people on short-term mission trips. And I would make note at this point, uh, two years ago, we passed the 1,000 point. More and more of our young people are making preparation to enter the ministry. Our junior and senior high youth groups are seeing unprecedented growth through peer evangelism. The church as a whole has been growing at an annual rate of 12%, 16% last year since the revival began, the bulk of which is through new conversion growth. Financial giving is up. My counseling load is down. Of all of this, what is it that you see as unbiblical or ungodly? Listen, I have many stories to tell. We could go on for hours and hours. I've got 12 years worth of stories to tell. But please, do not ever be satisfied with just stories. And don't lock on. I believe God's going to move again, and I believe your pastor's going to get to see and participate in another move of God. But I can almost equally guarantee that it won't look anything like what we came through. So don't be satisfied with the stories. They weren't enough for the prophet Habakkuk, who said, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day, in our time. Make them known. We need new stories. We need our own stories. And we can't satisfy or be satisfied with just a replay of things past. Let your longing be for God. Let it be for God. See, I have come to believe that revival comes when Christians are longing for God and God alone. Revival ought not be seen as a means to an end. I want revival because I want souls saved. Wrong motivation. I want revival because I want my church to be full. Wrong motivation. I want revival because it sounds exciting. Wrong motivation. Revival comes when Christians long for God and God alone. Beginning in July of 1994, God came to church. And his coming changed our church forever. As I said, revival lasted for 12 years. We became a revival center for the Northeast We had people from all of New England and many of the joining states travel to come to the meetings that were going on. Thousands of Christians were touched. Thousands of churches were changed. Twelve years. 
And I've got to tell you, anyone who was touched by God during those years was left with a desire for more, was left with a hunger and a thirst for God's living presence. Moses valued the presence of God more than anything else because it was his manifest presence that distinguished Israel. And I am convinced that now, in our day, it is his living, tangible, manifest presence that must distinguish us. The church today is filled with words, with music, with ideas, with programs, with rationalizations. But so is the world. We need to seek after God. We need to experience, honor, and cherish the manifest presence of God and no longer be satisfied with pulling on oars made of ash wood and sailing by the ash breeze. Amen. Pastor Doug, I don't have a clue what you want to do next. Rather than just listening to me all this time, 